Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Cool. So we're actually in week three of a series that Dave asked me to do. Well, he asked me to speak for three weeks and it feels like a long time ago because I spoke and then we had Easter and then I spoke and then we were off last week and now this week is week three. So just as a recap, if you weren't here, um, obviously they're on podcasts and they're all over the place. So, but, um, so a few weeks ago, we were talking about a guy called Obed-Edom. I won't make you remember his name again like I did last time. Um, and he was the guy that King David stored the Ark of the Covenant in his house for a few months. And we learn in that story that God blessed him abundantly by enabling the presence of the Lord to dwell in his home for three months. And that Obed-Edom then followed the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, almost stepping away and walking away from the blessing that was in his home in order for him to be able to stay and remain in the presence of the Lord. Last week... We um, had a look at, well, two weeks ago, we had a look at the opposing heart positions between the people who built the Tower of Babel and the call and response of Abraham. We looked at how building the Tower of Babel was actually done in an act of defiance against the Lord and how Abraham, in his response, provided us an example of what trust in God's providence looks like. We also looked at how a motive to honour God and his name is paramount for walking with God. And we noted that having a heart that is willing to follow God's leading and that openness to God's plans for new things is actually really, really important. And lastly, we also looked at how it's important that the fruit of your labor may not actually be seen by you in your lifetime, that it may actually only be known by God. And so when we're following the, like the, the providence of the Lord, it's important for us to remember that our lives aren't actually about us, that they're about following God. And it's not his agenda, or not sorry, it's not our agenda, but it's his agenda. And it's even, it's like, it's, and it's also interesting because we spoke, so I, I hope Nemo came over our house for dinner a few weeks ago and we were having a chat to them. So God, when I was away for the last few months, or the last month, God really laid on my heart that there needs to be more of an openness. I'm, I'm an, I bleed Anglican, like, I'm so structured. And like the idea that we would go off script, like it pulls against a whole bunch, right? And so when they came to me this morning, I said, oh, you know, we're going to do a bit of free worship. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And then I can feel myself going, oh, we're going off script. <laughs> so, so, but the idea that we would allow space for the Holy Spirit to be able to do the work in, his, in our lives that he needs to do means that we have to go off script all of the time. 
because it's not about us. It's really, really important, okay? So, today's message is going to be a continuation of that theme in a way, and I will draw some conclusions this morning, because this is the last time I'm speaking for a little while. But I want to begin this morning by asking a question. So, if you were to go to bed tonight... And when you woke up tomorrow morning, God promised that he would answer every single one of your heart's desires. Just the greatest outpouring of blessing that you've ever seen. Friends and family would come to know Jesus. Sickness of loved ones would be cured. Receiving all the money you need, not only for yourself, but for the overflow of blessing for everyone around you. Strongholds that have plagued you for your entire life just instantly disappearing. Is that a deal you'd take? God promises it all tonight. And when you wake up in tomorrow morning, your world is completely different. But the catch is, you get all of that but you'll never experience the presence of God again. No intimate knowledge of the divine, but all your prayers and heart's desires will be answered. Is that a deal you'd take? Now we know the Christian answer to that. (laughs) Or what if God was to offer you something different? That a path that is more rocky, a path that is more unpredictable, a road on which many of your deepest prayers and desires will not be answered. You'll have disappointments that plague you your entire lives. But on this road, God promises you his presence. And he will be your companion every step of the way. What choice would you choose? We'll get back to that in a bit. So we're going to begin our story this morning by looking at the narrative of Moses. Now his story is quite long and involved, so I won't go into every Bible verse. Um, But just to summarize sort of the first few chapters of his life, so Moses was born an Israelite in Egypt while the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And um, he gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, so he becomes Pharaoh's adopted grandson. Uh, About 40 years after all of that happens, Moses is in Egypt somewhere, and he sees an um, Egyptian beating a fellow Israelite. Now, he knew he was an Israelite. He knew he was Hebrew, and everyone knew he was. So he goes and kills this guy who's beating on this Israelite guy. And um, Pharaoh ends up finding out about it. So Moses scarpers, ends up going to a place called Midian, which is modern-day Jordan. And if you actually look at a map, you'll notice that where he was in Egypt and Midian, he actually has to cross the desert 
almost past the promised land to get there. He has a family. He gets married, obviously, has a family. And he's in Midian for about 40 years. And it tells us in Exodus 3, after about 40 years, that Moses has what we call a theophany. That is, a visible manifestation of God. And we read in Exodus 3, starting at chapter 1. So meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock onto the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's actually the mountain of Sinai. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, the, the interaction goes on further than that. Um, but in this interaction, God is almost reintroducing himself to Moses again. Because there's no indication from the text that whilst over the 400 odd years that the Egyptian, that the Hebrews had been in Egypt as slaves, that they had any interaction with God at all. At the end of the book of Genesis, we have Joseph, who is now the ruler. And then at the start of Exodus, it's like, now they're slaves. And they'd forgotten who Joseph was. So they don't know. There's no indication. So in this interaction, God actually reveals a couple of things which are quite important. The first thing that he reveals is his holiness. So the primary meaning of holiness in the Bible is to be set apart. God's holiness describes his complete otherness from everything that he has created. Holiness describes God's absolute moral purity and the absolute moral distance between him and humanity. Now, we could obviously go through a list of characteristics of why God's holy and what about God is holy. But R.C. Sproul writes this. When the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for his deity. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that in his love is holy love, that his justice is holy justice, his mercy is holy mercy, his knowledge is holy knowledge, and his spirit is holy spirit. End quote. So God's holiness is what he is. Moses, take your shoes off. You're walking on holy ground. The second thing that God reveals to Moses in this time is his glory. Now, glory can have a couple of meanings. It's actually quite hard to define. 
but it can mean fame or renown. When, so when you honor someone for who they are or what they do. And glory can also signify magnificence or awesome splendor. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 tells us that the whole earth is filled with his glory. The glory of God, that is his fame and his magnificence, is the outworking display of who God is. Of his holiness. And one author puts it this way. The glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. So when it talks about that the, the glory of God fills the earth, is that the holiness of God, the very being of who God is, actually covers the earth. It's everywhere. And the last thing that he reveals in this interaction with Moses is his name. Now, we didn't read it, but in verse 14, God reveals his name to Moses. Now, knowing someone's name is really important because a name expresses a person's essence or identity and meaning in life. You'll see a lot often that they were known as something and then God changes their name to something else. He's re-identifying them. Abram to Abraham. Simon Peter. And the thing is, when God reveals his name, he's revealing his faithfulness. So when he speaks to Moses and he says, I am the God of your father, that he was faithful and present in the past. And then he says, I will be with you that he is faithful and going to be present to us presently and in the future. God, who reveals his name as I am, reveals himself as the God who is always there, who is present to his people in order to save them. Now, this conversation between Moses and God goes on, um, and pretty much God goes I want you to go back to Egypt. And Moses is like, no. And he goes, but I really want you to go. And then he goes, no. And that happens backwards and forwards. And they they, they come to an agreement with Aaron as well, being involved in that. But eventually, Moses goes back to Egypt. And he confronts a new pharaoh. And the thing is, this actually isn't a confrontation between Moses and pharaoh. This is a confrontation between the gods of Egypt and Yahweh. And when we look at the plagues, so there was a whole bunch of plagues, and so he was like, you know, let my people go. And he's like, no, and he goes, fine. <laughs> let my people go, no, fine. <laughs> and so what was happening? So it was like, so they had gods of the river. And God went, are they really gods of the river? I'm turning into blood. There's nothing they can do about that. So after a period, obviously, all of the plagues happen. And eventually, Pharaoh relents for just long enough that the the, um, Israelites can escape. And then he turns around and goes, actually, hang on, I'm going to lose my free workforce here, so I'm going to go after them. So he does. And um, the people eventually escape, 
by the parting of the Red Sea. And obviously the process of that is that the entire Egyptian army is then destroyed in that they're drowned in the Red Sea. And we're told at the end of Exodus 14 verse 31 that when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. So the people have just been slightly introduced to God. They've seen some of the workings of him. But they're in the desert now. And they're getting food, miraculously. Manna, quail, they're getting water, miraculously, from rocks in various places. But they're grumbling. Saying to Moses, you know what? We were slaves in Egypt, but at least we were being fed. It's funny if you then go back and read what was actually happening to them in Egypt. It's how quickly memory fades about how bad they actually had it. And they're pretty much going, you've brought us out here to die. Where on earth is this God of yours? You promised us all these things. What on earth is happening here? So about after three months of walking around the desert, let a, remember that this is a really short walk. It's not that long, but they've already been there for three months. And they're camping at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain. And it's here that the Lord tells Moses that if they keep his covenant, they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. And this is what God wants for the people, for them to be a holy people, a holy nation. Moses then comes down the mountain and proceeds to consecrate them, preparing the nation for this very specific role of being a priestly kingdom. But eventually the people actually have to meet God. And so this is what happened next. God comes down the mountain, starting at verse, sorry, Exodus 19, starting at verse 16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud blast from a ram's horn, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped, 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 that's the word, to, in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. His smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently as the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. What an introduction. We hear a bit more, the Ten Commandments and stuff are given at this time, but then I just want to chase the people's response. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 21. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. 
So Moses tells them to not be afraid. But they stand there at a distance and only Moses would approach, draw near to God. And the thing is, this seems like a normal reaction. It seems like a natural reaction. Something really scary is happening and I don't want to go there. The thing is, this is the God that delivered them from Egypt. This is the God that sent the plagues. This is the God that saved them through the Red Sea. They had seen the wonder and glory of his majesty. They had seen that, but they're still afraid. And as it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, only Moses would approach the total darkness where God was. Only Moses would enter the presence of the Lord. Only Moses would mediate between the people and God. And this might not seem like a big deal. But the thing is, the entire people were to become a kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom with priests. That's a very different thing. So I have a question. Do you want to be a Moses? Or do you want to be someone who just hangs around a Moses? Very often, you hear people go, oh, I'm, no, I don't want that. Do you want to be around someone who you're safe, but they climb the mountain for you? And then come down and you tell us what's, what God says. Now, it might be that you don't want to do that because you think you're not worthy. Or it might be that you're too scared. Or it might be that you've seen people who have done that and their lives have flipped upside down and you're like, I don't want a part of that. Or it might be that you're too lazy. Going up the mountain is too hard because I want to live my life. So the people are standing back. Pretty much hard pass. No thank you. You go up and deal with God, and then we'll listen to you. But the thing is, God wouldn't allow it to sit there. He wasn't actually okay with that. And since the people would not come to God, he would go to them. And then we find that in the next little bit in this book of Exodus, that he gives them the specifications to build the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a tent that the people could move from place to place. It was designed to house the presence of God's glory. It was the earthly dwelling for God. And we're told in Exodus chapter 40 that when the tabernacle was completed, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And the presence of the Lord was so thick that Moses wasn't able to enter it. I've got to tell you, this is one of my favorite pictures in the Bible. That a room was so thick with God's glory that you actually couldn't enter it. 
Can you imagine coming to church on a Sunday and having everyone in the car park and going, why are you all out here? And going, the presence of God is so thick in that room that we're actually going to worship him out in the car park. And then we get the book of Leviticus and all of that afterwards where God is actually giving him the law and how to live. That was given to Moses standing outside the temple because he couldn't go in. That the presence was too thick. So we're told in Exodus chapter 40, verses 36 to 38, that the Lord was now a physical presence amongst the people. That he was, a, that he was represented by a cloud by day and a fire inside the cloud at night that would hover over the tent for all to see. And that if the cloud rested on the tabernacle, they would camp and they would stay there. And if the cloud went up, then the people would pack up camp and then follow the cloud wherever it went. So then they were actively following the leadership of the Lord. We're told later in Leviticus chapter 9, when Aaron and some priests were being ordained, that the presence of the Lord came down again. Leviticus chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down. So let me start drawing some lines here that I want to draw out of what I'm talking about so far. And then we'll keep going. So in Exodus chapter 3, we are told that the presence of the Lord came down to Moses in the form of fire that didn't consume a bush. In Exodus 19, we are told that the Lord's presence came before the people down the mountain. There was smoke, there was wind, there was fire. In Exodus chapter 40, when the tabernacle was completed and the presence of the Lord filled it, there was cloud and there was smoke and then there was a column of fire. In Leviticus chapter 9, when the priests were ordained, the presence of the Lord came down to consume the burnt offering with fire. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Let's keep going. Now remember, God wants a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests. And at this stage, this is what he's got. A kingdom with priests. And at this stage, it is only the priests who have access to God through the tabernacle. The general population weren't allowed to go in there. So years and years pass. They eventually get into the promised land. And we find ourselves in the time of the kings. The people are now in Jerusalem. Obed-Edom's had his moment. The temple has just been completed and they're dedicating it to Yahweh. They bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is at this point in time the place where God's presence dwells, into the most holy place of the temple. That's 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 6. And then we'll read verse, 1 Kings chapter 8, starting at verse 10. When the priests came down out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple, and because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Exactly what happened at the end of the dedication of the tabernacle happens again at the dedication of the temple. 
Same thing. There's no fire in this account, though. However, if you look at the parallel version of the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting at verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests were not able to enter the Lord's temple because of the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Fire, smoke, cloud. Now after this, things don't go very well for the people. Eventually they're put into exile, the temple's destroyed. After a while they come out of exile back into the land and they rebuild the temple. But the presence of the Lord never returns to the temple. They never have the presence of the Lord again there. Then after that, hundreds of years pass. And then we come to the time of Jesus. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt here, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, can also be translated as tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Remember, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, the cloud covering, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, the gospel writer here is being very symbolic but he's saying some actually really profound things. The tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwells, is now amongst the people again. Except this time, it's not a building. It's a person. The Word, who we know is Jesus, is the presence of the Lord. He dwelled among the people and they observed his glory. And the thing is, the tabernacle is not only the place where God's presence dwelt, but it's also the place where God met with humanity. It was called the tent of meeting. John is saying here, it is in Jesus, and only Jesus, where humanity is now able to meet with God. And if we also remember Moses and the burning bush, where Yahweh not only reveals his holiness, but also his glory. Remember the manifestation of the holiness of God. Jesus here is not only the very presence of God. He is not only the place where humanity is able to meet with God, but he is also the manifestation of the holiness of God. In his time on earth, Jesus establishes a new kingdom of God and says that God's presence was filling the earth through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Jesus, however, in the physical form, is limited to one place at one time. And he says, this is Jesus says in John chapter 16, that he has to go in order for the Spirit to come 
and the presence of God will be available to everyone all the time. Jesus is crucified, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, and then he ascends. And then we come to Acts chapter 2. And it's the day of Pentecost, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues of, like flames of fire that separated the rest of, of, on each, and rested on each one of them. They were filled, sorry, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Wind, fire. Remember the mountain? Remember the tabernacle? Remember the temple? God's presence is now not in a tent or a temple, but is present in humanity. Peter goes on in Acts chapter 2 to remind his listeners that God's Spirit will be poured out onto all people. And that's why we don't need a physical temple anymore. Because the church is now God's temple, not the physical building, but the community of people that, that call it at home. That's where God's presence rests and rules. Now, remember at the start, I said that God's wish for the people was that they would be a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests. First Peter, start in chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Now, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honoured by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as we come to Jesus, who become, we become a spiritual house, dwelling place for the Lord. And in doing so, we are not a kingdom with priests anymore but a kingdom with, uh, with but a holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests. The exact thing that God wanted for the people when he came down the mountain is now alive and active in us. The plan all along for God's presence to dwell with his people was only able to be made known through the life, death, and sacrifice of Jesus. And those who are in Christ are now able to reign with him. That's the deal that happens when you become a Christian. So as we finish, let's revisit the initial question that I asked. I'll remind you. If you were to go to bed tonight and wake up 
God promises you to answer every single one of your heart's desires as you sleep. Greatest outpouring of blessing you could possibly imagine, but no presence. Or the more unpredictable road where many of your deepest prayers will not be answered. You'll have disappointments. But God promises you his presence and will be your companion on every step. What deal would you take? And the thing is you go, well, God would never do that. He would never ask that of us. The thing is, this is God presents this exact question in Exodus chapter 33. So Moses has been up the mountain. And while he's up there, the people are down at the base going to Aaron. Make us a cow. We really want to worship it. And Moses comes back down the mountain, destroys the golden cow. And you could understand that God in this moment is quite vexed, to say the least. And he says to Moses, look, I'll send angels ahead of you. I'll get them to defeat all your enemies. And you can go into the promised land just as I promised. But they're a stiff-necked people. And if I go with you, I'm going to kill them. Because I can't, I can't. All of God's promises fulfilled but no presence. God actually gave his people that option. This is Moses' response. Exodus 33, starting at verse 15. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favour with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all other people on the face of the earth. We drive the same cars as everybody. We work the same jobs. We listen to the same music. We watch the same movies. And the thing is, we think the difference that makes us different from everybody else is that we come to church on Sunday and we tithe. That is not what distinguishes a Christian from everybody else. The thing that distinguishes the Christian from everybody as a follower of Christ, from everybody else, is that we have the presence of the Lord. And there is nothing else. Because nothing else, all the other stuff, is what we do. That's the work of our hand. But the presence of the Lord is the thing. doesn't mean that our lives will be neat and tidy. It doesn't mean that you'll get all the money. It doesn't mean that you'll be free from pain. It doesn't mean that you'll be free from hurt. 
doesn't mean that you're going to get all your heart's desires. But it does mean that God, through his spirit, is with us all the time. That we can rely on him for our counsel and comfort. It means that when we enter the dark places, the spirit of God goes with us. That God is ever present to us. We've just had Easter a couple of weeks ago. And at the end of May, I think it is, we celebrate Pentecost. Which is a celebration of the exact thing that happened 2,000 years ago when the Spirit of the Lord came amongst the people. And the thing is, I don't know how, we inter- how you interpret Pentecost, but when you start to look at then when the presence of the Lord over and over and over again, when he comes down to visit his people, there is wind, there is fire, there is change. You do not stay the same. We have had our Pentecost. When you become a Christian, I I remember this being a debate in, in Bible college, that there was debate, do you get When you become a Christian, do you get the whole fullness of the Lord or does it happen in stages? The idea that you would only get a bit of God, to me is, I don't understand that thinking. When you become a Christian, you get the fullness of who God is in your life. It is revealed in stages, most definitely. For some people, it might take forever to do that. Tripping over my shoelace. <laughs> but the thing is, we've had our day of Pentecost. The presence of the Lord dwells fully in you. That is what distinguishes you from everybody else. Doesn't mean you have to be a good little Christian, however you interpret that. I don't know. But the outworking of the presence of the Lord is that you are different. People should look at you and go, what is up with that person? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, find someone who is different and go, I'm going to hang out with you for a little while. I want to catch what you've got. I said this two weeks ago. I've gone over, I'm sorry. I'm going to say it again. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. God declares to Abraham that he is God alone, God Almighty, and he calls Abraham and his descendants to live in his presence and to be blameless, to seek the face of the Lord and to live holy lives before him. Two weeks ago, I reminded us that we are still in the promise The promise to Abraham hasn't been fulfilled yet because it only is fully fulfilled when Jesus returns. We are still children of the promise. We are children with presence. We are a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests. It's not my job, it's not Dave's job to go up the mountain for you. It's not our job to come back down. It's not job the worship team to come down and go, okay, let's pray some Holy Spirit keys. 
and the presence comes. The idea that you would expect someone else to walk that path for you is unheard of in the Bible. In fact, it's unbiblical. It is the individual's role to chase the Lord, to seek his presence and to live a holy life before him. And the thing is, we take that like it's a burden. It's a privilege that you can do that. The creator of the universe wants to spend time with you. But Netflix is better. Seek the presence of the Lord and live holy lives before him. Let us pray.